This is West of Center. I'm Jason Albert. Daryl Miller is an ex-rodeo clown, ex-Mills instructor, and a retired Denali National Park climbing ranger. Back in 1995, along with partner Mark Stasek, he completed the second 350-mile circumnavigation of Denali and Mount Foraker. They did all this in winter. So if there's one thing Daryl Miller understands, it's cold. So winter climbing, uh, the best, you have to just understand if you sign up for it, what you see is what you got. In other words, you're out there. It's just being able to take responsibility for yourself. Most of the people that go up there, they, they're fundamentally 100% knowing that they don't have any chance if they screw up. It's just them. Unlike Denali's spring and summer climbing seasons, the Park Service does not staff a medical tent at 14,000 feet in winter. So calling for a wintertime rescue and actually being rescued, that's wishful thinking. So over decades, as the person greeting winter climbers at the Talkeetan Ranger Station, Miller has seen it all. From minimalist groups exploiting a quick weather window to soloists prepared for a slow and steady months-long climb. Miller says what most successful cold weather climbers have in common is a high threshold for suffering. Yeah, there's gonna be a fair amount of that suffering. Even with all the good gear, winter climbing is about suffering and everything takes longer, everything breaks easier, and everything is twice as hard. The winter climbers are less and more on Denali, for sure. When I told a friend I was working on this podcast episode and how I wanted to feature John Waterman's first winter ascent of Denali's Cassine Ridge, we'll get to that in a bit, he emailed back and asked if I'd ever heard of the Japanese caribou, who's actually a seasoned Alaska Range wintertime climber. I did end up Skyping the caribou, but Daryl Miller also helped fill in some background info. And you know, I, I don't know, you haven't met him, you've talked to him, right? Miller's talking about the Japanese caribou. His name is Masatoshi Kiriaki. You know, Jason, if you put him in a, a crowd of 100 people and said, okay, tell me the baddest ass in here, winter climber, he'd never rise to the top and he'd go through most of the crowd. You'd never pick him out. Miller and I got on the topic of the Japanese caribou because I wanted to know how climbers manage the cold in short Alaskan winter days. How do they prepare for something like that? Turns out, lots of stuff is part of the equation. Miller has seen all that gear. A few years back, Miller picked the Japanese caribou up in Anchorage and shuttled him to Talkeetna, the takeoff point for most Alaska range climbs. He had 850 some pounds of gear and that was to establish a number of camps trying to climb Mount Hunter. Miller loaded up his sizable pickup. We got everything in it, but you couldn't have got another sandwich in there. I mean, it was amazing. Then there's the prep work. That's when Miller brings up the tuna locker, like a big industrial freezer. He says it's part of the Japanese caribou's training. Anybody that would start out in a tuna locker in Japan at minus 67 and practice his systems, meaning his parka, his sleeping bag, his tent, his pack, all the zipper systems, being able to start and stop a stove, put things away, pack it up. I mean, this is Masatoshi. There's Masatoshi and then the rest. First off, I want to verify the tuna locker story. And he said, well, do you know that he train, you know, he gets into a tuna locker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, what, tell me about the tuna locker. So, so uh, I decided to <laughs> go to the uh, uh, freezer factory, and so tuna locker. I guess that's as good a place as any to prepare for the cold. A place where they deep freeze sashimi. Sashimi is the raw fish of um, tuna. probably figured out you've been hearing Masatoshi Kariaki, the Japanese caribou. For him, cold is relative. In the tuna locker, it's a new level of sub-zero. Minus 55 Celsius is negative, negative 67 Fahrenheit. Due to company regulations, Masatoshi is allowed in the freezer for an hour at a time. That's when he tests for any potential cold-induced equipment failures. Simple things like how a zipper functions. And I tested everything for the, everything, the equipment, bottom layers, base layers, and down stuff, and the headlight and the camera. But before I move on, it's worth mentioning something about Masatoshi's nickname. So when I rung him up, I explained how I first heard of him from my friend. You know, he's like, oh man, have you ever heard of this guy named the Japanese caribou? <laughs> <laughs> a Japanese ca caribou. A uh, Japanese caribou uh, is my nickname. I won't go into all the details, but at one point, after a winter solo attempt on Denali, Masatoshi evidently didn't get enough adventure. So he walked, as he says, The ocean to ocean, about yeah, 860 miles. 860 miles from Anchorage on the Gulf of Alaska to Barrow, which lays above the Arctic Circle. Like a wild animal, the caribou, caribou migrate, caribou migration. Uh, so I, I uh, named the Japanese caribou trip. And so the name stuck. And I guess it's kind of like what Daryl Miller said about picking the most badass fellow out at a party when they're humble and unassuming. Looks can be deceiving. Maybe that's the case for real caribou. Grizzly, king salmon, and wolves overshadow them, get most of the press. But I mean, all things considered, in terms of the ground they cover, caribou are pretty badass, so the name fits. Here's the thing. Masatoshi wants to climb the Alaska Range's big three, Denali, Foraker, and Mount Hunter, solo and in winter. He'll be the first to do so as soon as he summits Mount Hunter before the spring solstice. And even when he's up there, solo, he finds ways to make connections. So I almost always uh, listen to Raven's sounds. Then I, uh, one Raven fly over. Then we made a talk. He even says this one Raven could count. Talking to Ravens may be one way to cope with the cold and minimal daylight, the solitude. Masatoshi also writes haiku, listens to country music on distant Alaskan stations, and photographs the northern lights. But one year on Hunter, it got beyond tuna locker cold, so no ravens. No ravens, so I couldn't see, no reason, no reason to come, come to see me that winter. Too cold. And ravens are known for their smarts. Because the, the winter Denali is a very serious undertaking. I know. Very serious when you check out a map and realize how isolated anyone is there in winter. It's deep wilderness. So I asked Masatoshi why he solos and doesn't team up. Too, too tough to keep, keep a relationship. To, uh, yeah, because of crazy world. Just, just enough to 
to keeping by by themselves, just just to survive. So barely hanging on, surviving sounds like a bad way to make upward progress. But the Japanese caribou is at it again, relying only on himself. A few months back in January 2014, he arrived in Anchorage, tossed his gear in Daryl Miller's truck, and prepped for another shot at climbing Mount Hunter in winter. It's something like his ninth attempt on the mountain. With that in mind, this brings us to a story I first read years ago by writer and conservationist John Waterman. The story is called The Winter of Our Discontent, and Waterman just updated the story in a new collection titled Northern Exposures. Anyhow, the story is about the first and only successful winter climb of Denali's Cassine Ridge. But unlike Masatoshi making connections with things like ravens, this story is a bit different. It's about human connections, deep relationships breaking down. Over 20 years ago, I read Waterman's words about the Cassine epic. And what struck me most about the story, and still does, is Waterman's relationship with his two climbing partners, Roger Mears and Mike Young. I suppose it's a familiar tale of good friends with good intentions having the relationship unravel, and unravel in a place where you can least afford it. And maybe that shouldn't have surprised me. As Masatoshi says, the Alaska range in winter is a crazy world, where it's just enough to take care of yourself. Back then, Waterman's wordsmithing extinguished my romantic notion of what climbing in the mountains meant. He reveals harsh places can be the unforgiving geography of rot. So these three fit guys, admittedly cocky, land on the glacier during the winter of 1982. They acclimate to the dim winter light and snow cave living as they move slowly towards the Cassine. Ten days later, they emerge from a dank cave at the base of the Japanese Kluar, the Cassine's entry point. The snow's cold and squeaks like styrofoam. Everything's a chore. It was just bloody cold and dark. That's John Waterman. So in the cold, they brew and head up. We climbed over the, the Bergschrund, that is the crevasse that separates the, 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 the ice couloir from the glacier uh, into the Japanese couloir. For about 1,200 feet of climbing. And it wasn't steep, you know, it wasn't by today's standards, it's very easy climbing, but it was brittle, frozen, solid ice. Each axe wing releases dinner plates of ice that tumble on the partners below. It's slow going. Because we had such heavy packs. We know we had good 70-pound packs. They top out on the couloir late in the day. And we reach the, the bivouac spot known as the Cassin Ledge in the darkness. It's a basic rock ledge. It's just wide enough to lay out your sleeping bags. They peer over a big void and secure their gear. Tied our boots around our necks and, and uh, went to sleep. They wake up and face the reality of their position. They sit below some more serious pitches of mixed climbing. It, it was uh, a, a real test at <laughs> the beginning of the day to, to have that kind of rock climbing with heavy packs just to start your day and the wind is blowing and there's still 10,000 feet of climbing above, above us. The team climbed snow in the occasional rock section, sometimes roped and belaying, other times soloing. During the rope sections, the leader or followers feel the tug of the rope you would uh, get tugged on or you would pull the other person off balance. So there was a lot of yelling and screaming 
as we moved along. Waterman is diplomatic in describing the vibe. Not a lot of grace in that day. A, a very, a very desperate day, that, that second day. The day's climbing ascends a ridge peppered with 18-wheeler-sized cornices, and if that stress isn't enough, the wind's howling. Uh, fortunately found a, 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 a shallow crevasse that um, we jumped in for the night, and it, and it made a pretty good shelter, and all night long the wind blew, and, and Spindrift was coming into that shallow crevasse and sort of covering us uh, uh, as we slept, uh, covering our sleeping bags. So it's a very anxious evening, you know, hearing the wind shriek up above us, or you could see the snow filtering down and dusting us. Cocooned in the crevasse around 13,500 feet, it's a restless high-latitude evening. This is a good point to take a step back and examine the team's building personal tensions. Here it goes. Years before, Waterman was an Appalachian Mountain Club hut caretaker in Mount Washington's Tuckerman's Ravine. That's where he met Mike Young. And he was the winter caretaker for a nearby cabin in Huntington's Ravine. They both loved ice climbing and spent time running up and down the mountain as fast as they could. Huntington's ice gullies became a playground and they became absorbed in the climbing community. And, and that's the way we were. Um, we, uh, we were part of a cult and a culture. It's as if the rest of the world doesn't exist. Waterman and Mike Young were bonded by the rope. And if you climb a lot with another person, you cut off the ties with the rest of the world and you, you tend to increase your sensitivity to another person and develop these deep friendships. And uh, the bond of the rope is a very strong one. Over the years, Waterman and Young remained close friends, climbing when they could. Young became a Rhodes Scholar and attended medical school, while Waterman worked outward bound trips and settled into the groove of an aspiring rider. All along, they schemed to climb something audacious in wintertime, and that became plans for a first winter ascent of Denali's Cassine Ridge. We loved the cold, and we thought that with proper training, being psyched, and a little bit of luck thrown in, um, that we could pull this off. They still needed a third partner, we really believed that three climbers was a perfect number because we could have one stove and one tent. It was just a more efficient number by our reckoning. Englishman Roger Mears became the third rope mate. He is a very mischievous character and great sense of humor, which makes for a great personality when you're trapped in blizzards and snow caves for extended periods of time. To be able to laugh at yourselves and have fun is an important part of this, this strange game of winter mountaineering. Having already climbed the north face of the Agra in winter, Mears provided the team with a high level of technical skill. And the kind of person, of course, that would be offered this kind of opportunity and rather than say no, say, well, that's a, a crazy idea, I'm interested. Beyond his technical expertise, Mears balanced out the group's intensity. Roger Mears was a very self-assured, uh, anarchistic, Fellow, just just the kind of person that I was drawn to. Initially, Waterman, Young, and Mears asked Parks Canada to climb Mount Logan in winter. Their request was denied. The Canadian authorities insisted on a team of four, so they shifted their eyes to Denali's south face and the Cassine Ridge. The Cassine Ridge is nothing but a classic. It's named after Riccardo Cassine, a visionary Italian alpinist. 
1961, he led a seasoned group of Italian climbers on the route's first ascent. And the Cassin Ridge was a logical choice because it loomed large in our minds. It was known as a classic route. You know, many good climbers go there in the summertime and are thwarted. Um, so we knew that it had the requisite amount of, of challenge and danger and uh, it, it would be uh, something that uh, uh, would test us uh, sorely. That test would require more than solid experience and sound judgment. A certain amount of luck needed to pull off something like this. Luck in that you need good weather, and, and good weather is really all about luck. Of course, we weren't going to start up the mountain in bad weather, um, but we didn't know how long the good weather was going to last once we started climbing. So in that sense, luck was part of the calculus of getting up this route, not only successfully, but surviving this route. The three climbers shared a singularity of focus, but that singularity came at a cost because of the team's competitiveness. No one wanted to be the weak link. So weeks before they flew into the glacier, Waterman severely twists his ankle while skiing. But it, it never really totally healed, so I started up the mountain uh, limping. The injury made cramponing painful. Um, as if that wasn't bad enough, I also had contracted a chest cold uh, and uh, was coughing quite badly. This double whammy compromised Waterman. In Talkeetna, the team waited for their glacier flight weather window, but Waterman asked for time to heal up. Remember asking Roger if we could just wait a couple of days once the weather cleared and the bush pod got ready to fly us in. It's about an 80-mile flight in a ski plane over rugged tundra and big-time glaciated terrain from sea level to the base camp at 7,000 feet. And the, the weather had cleared up and the bush pilot was ready to go. And I said, you know, it, it, it might be smart if we could just wait a couple of days for, for, so that I could get over this cold. It was actually worse than a cold. But uh, both of my partners let me know in no uncertain terms that... Uh, it was now or never, and if, and if I wasn't going now, uh, they were going to go without me. And that was unthinkable to me, because I had dreamed of this climb for more than a year, it really for several years, because I, I always felt that my climbing was, as a mountaineer, I was working up to something bigger, to something as unequivocal as the Cassin Ridge in wintertime. I was the, the principal. I was the guy that really... Um, drove these other two guys to, to go on this trip and put this thing together. And uh, so I had to go. There was, there was no turning back. Waterman, hobbled by the bum ankle and deep respiratory illness, flies onto the Cahiltna Glacier. As if he wasn't already compromised, he was soon totally humiliated. During a full-blown storm low on the glacier, Waterman struggles out of the team's squalid snow cave to relieve himself. I had a little accident out in the in the the wind. My fingers were so cold I couldn't properly unzip my suit. Mears and Young, disgusted by the smell, bundle up and work their way out of the snow cave, returning later while Waterman boils his clothing. With two partners there in the tight confines of this little snow cave we were sharing, uh, having to clean out uh, my my suit after fouling it uh, was a, a miserable uh, low point of the entire climb. That low point seemingly couldn't get worse. I think often 
in particularly in a, a three-person team somewhere in remote places, the likelihood of one of those three people becoming the so-called odd man out is very strong. From the beginning, I was perceived as the, as the weak member of the climb. As with many fit and driven groups, the team suffers from an overly competitive dynamic. This made for a terrible dynamic, um, and all the, the, the friendships and humor and fun that we had shared before the climb was utterly absent as soon as we landed on the glacier. In his diminished condition, Waterman feels he has to prove himself. For the rest of the climb, I felt I had to, to prove to my partners that I was not the odd man out, that I was not the weak one, to, to show that, that um, I could endure anything that the other guys could. Moreover, that I wasn't going to be a liability, that I was as strong as the other guys, and that, that I would contribute to the well-being of our climb and suffer as much or more if need be. Waterman says now he understands why his partners would be pissed. The trip's success teeters on Waterman's suspect health. We're talking three Uber competitors. We can imagine their inner dialogue. Who's the fastest? Who's the boldest? Who can suffer? And it becomes too easy to identify that weak link. Both of them projected airs of, of confidence and no doubt the outward appearance of all three of us was one of a, no small amount of swagger, but I do believe that we are all scared inside and, and uh, trying to keep the boogeyman at bay. That's the backstory for their short and often harsh personal interactions. Back up on the casino, where they're bundled in that shallow crevasse atop the cornicerette, outwardly, they all appear to be keeping the boogeyman at bay. So it's a very anxious evening, you know, hearing the wind shriek up above us. You could see the snow filtering down and dusting us. They're covered by spindrift when they awake. Well, we are all still pretty strong at this point, you know. We weren't feeling the effects of altitude. They dust themselves off, unzip sleeping bags, pack and brew. We got up very quickly and were up in the dark and climbing before it became light. The wind backs off a bit. They're mid-mountain. The weather holds as they climb mostly mixed terrain. They rarely rest. And it seemed like we had this climb uh, within grasp. The third night on the route. We did not have an option of, of caving. It was all rock hard snow and ice. So they set up a small bivy tent with room only for two. To prove his mettle, Waterman volunteers to sleep outside. Here's where something like a secluded winter climb has a payoff. The moon seemed full. And at the same time, Extraordinarily, the, the northern lights were playing. They could also see the lights of Anchorage in the distance. And we're completely alone on the mountain. It's just a feeling of exquisite peace and an opportunity to bear witness to something that I, uh, I've never seen something so beautiful. In that moment, Waterman feels this. A feeling of, of destiny in being there. Despite the 30 to 40 sub-zero temps, Waterman is recharged. But early the next day, climbing a chimney, Roger accidentally knocks a large boulder down. It just misses the two below. It was just a great reminder that, that hey, this is, this is the real thing out here. A near-lethal reminder to pay attention. Yet, they're still making good progress. I would have to say it was, it was the most enjoyable day of the climb. 
Eventually, they began strenuous snow climbing around 16,000 feet. And as Waterman says, they were constantly watching the weather. Weather forecasts were done by the seat of the pants. At least we could look as far as you could see in Alaska anyways, um, to the south. And, and yeah, as long as it seemed clear that way, you know, at least that was uh, half of the, the world seemed to, to offer good weather. That high up, on a mountain that catches most of the weather rolling in off the North Pacific, the three know part of the climb's outcome is a roll of the dice. There was a real sense of foreboding up there. You know, the, the same sort of foreboding you feel, you know, it, it's akin to walking down a dark alleyway. You know, you kind of, we were looking over our shoulders. We were really scared. Moving through some rock bands, Waterman is strong despite feeling the effects of dehydration and altitude. Starting the Cassine's upper snow slopes, they unrope. And I remember just kind of hitting the wall. Waterman stops and checks a topo, trying to determine how many more days until the summit, counting his time, engaging if the dice roll can play in his favor. Clearly, it was as if someone let all the air out of my balloon, you know, and I was just a deflated carcass. Around 16,500 feet, the temperature reads negative 40 below. A bit higher up, Waterman bogs down. I was in some sort of Neanderthal um, caveman survival mode at this point, and I think that probably Roger and Mike were a lot more concerned. I think initially they were just pissed and impatient that I was moving so slowly and obviously so wrecked by the altitude. That night, Mike, who is an MD, dispenses sleeping pills. Dr. Mike was mistaken to give that to me. Sleeping pills are a respiratory depressant and can lead to high-altitude pulmonary edema, or fluid in the lungs. With the meds, Waterman sleeps soundly, but he awakes groggy and spends the day in a head-pounding fog, gaining just over a thousand feet on the day. They chop a platform and bivy at 18,000 feet. The next morning dawns clear again. Waterman stumbles upward as his partners yell for him to speed up. Roger and Mike lighten Waterman's pack. He still lags behind. The other two could have summited and been off the peak that day. They're frustrated as they ascend only another 1,000 feet and establish a risky sleeping perch at 19,000 feet. It's that very quality of ambition and being driven that becomes self-defeating, or at least in this case, became self-defeating when you have someone who's suddenly uh, no longer strong and is no longer part of that ambitious, driven personality because then it demands an entirely new character trait. You know, you need to have patience and compassion. I can only imagine how horrified they were not only to be slowed down by me with the prospect of the weather changing, but the prospect of me dying up there. After a deep sleep, during which Waterman dreamt he was drowning, they awake to a cloudless sky. Uncharacteristically, Waterman says prayers in a tense atmosphere, his breath bubbling from the edema. In the story published about this epic years ago, Waterman writes, Will and Roger departed the tent as if leaving a funeral home. Down below, the clouds gathered with a breaking down of the high pressure. It looked like the weather is changing, although it looked like that a lot. Step by step, Waterman realizes he alone would have to motivate himself up and over the top. They were openly pissed that, that I wasn't moving at, at our normal sort of speed to get off the mountain. 
Perhaps that sparks his competitive juices. Roger and Mike top out while Waterman struggles, even crawls. You know, I remember going to my hands and knees a lot on that final snow slope. Waterman focuses only on surviving. And Mike actually ran down and, and took my pack for the last, I don't know, it must have been at least 200 vertical feet. Waterman scrambles to his feet close to the summit, but wisely chooses to descend. The three plunge step down towards Denali Pass and the more forgiving West Buttress. I certainly couldn't keep up to them going downhill. And I repeatedly laid down and, you know, would catch myself falling asleep and would force myself to get up and keep walking. And it did occur to me re repeatedly that, that, um, where the hell are Mike and Roger? I mean, don't they understand how sick I am? I mean, they were completely out of sight, and I, I could barely stand. Waterman spits green bile. It's a total death march. You know, there's no way they were going to come up to get me in the dark. Um, I was on my own, and again, this really spurred me on. I was really angry. An every-man-for-themselves situation where he focuses on not tripping and not falling asleep. Well, it must have been every man for himself because, you know, they were so frustrated and impatient with me. So they knew that I was was suffering and that I was having trouble. Um, so why else would they have taken off? Uh, I, I, I can't put words in their mouths. Maybe sure. they were spent. Um, and maybe um, uh, they, were, they were feeling the altitude as well. I, I don't know. I can only speculate. Stumbling down at dusk, Waterman finds Roger curled outside the tent at 17,000 feet. Inside, Mike has a warm drink ready and tends to his own cold-damaged toes. The next morning, under a darkening sky, Waterman knows it's no longer a climb with friends. It's one condescending moment after another. To say I was hurt by it would not be expressing the full truth, you know. I hadn't been on climbs really where your partners actually were no longer your friends at the end of the climb, you know. that This was, this, this is not what I wanted to happen. It was obvious our friendships had disintegrated. And I would have to say that was probably true for Mike and Roger, too. With what little compassion remains, Roger prods Waterman along until they reach the West Buttresses Plateau at 14,000 feet. There, a group of British climbers greets them. Waterman originally wrote that one Brit says they look like asylum escapees. The team eventually hobbles back to the Cahiltna Glacier landing strip at 7,000 feet. There, they fester. Mike and John have frostbitten toes, and Roger Mears wrecks his knee in a crevasse fall. And we were just miserable in that snow cave at this point, you know, barely speaking to one another for eight days. At one point, a team of bass climbers are dropped off. The Cassine team is buried deep in their cave. They got out and yelled into the snow cave and we, we couldn't hear them and their pilot took off. Amidst the festering, the cold, the stress of the climb, Waterman says perhaps it's too tough for the team to remain cohesive. You know, this level of ambition and drive, it's, it's very hard to, to make a lot of room for other people when you um, have these, when you, when you do something like this. I don't want to characterize 
one or all three of us, I don't want to single out one of us as, as having deficiencies. So we were collectively frail, peculiar, eccentric guys. And uh, we wouldn't have been doing something like this if we weren't a little bit uh, off. Several days later, a pilot spots their SOS in the snow and their team was evacuated. Waterman knows he's lucky to have gotten away at all. And the fact that we got to the base of the climb, let alone got to the top of the Cassin Ridge, it is something akin to a miracle under the circumstances. And under the circumstances, the frayed relationships never found a bond again. When I first read Waterman's account, I couldn't help but sigh with him feel he was wronged. Now, decades later, Waterman's take on the climb has a more conciliatory tone, one in which he too personally owns their discontent. You can find links to John Waterman's work on westofcenter.org, including things like his latest story collection, Northern Exposures. And you can find more information about Waterman's writing, photography, and important conservation work at jonathanwaterman.com. 